Awesome, friends. Well, uh, hey, it's me again. Guess who's back? Back again. I appreciate y'all. Tell a friend. All right. Uh, no, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, hey, what we want to do is we want to jump into our time in the Word, and I want to jump straight in because I want to, uh, I have a New Year's goal, uh, and it is to preach shorter, so I want to just jump right in and, uh, and get to it, okay? So we're going to continue. I was way too enthusiastic on y'all's part, okay? But anyway, so we're going to go and jump in, uh, continue our sermon series about prayer entitled Praying with Paul. Last week we started uh, the sermon series. We're going to just focus in on what prayer looks like and, and how we pray. And, and when we think about prayer, what is prayer? How, last week we had a definition. Who remembers what it is? And do not joke about it, please, because not everyone was there for it. And we didn't record it, so they can't even go back and look at what the joke was. But what was the definition of prayer we used last week? Who remembers? That's all right, because we have it again. Okay, so what is prayer? We would, we would define prayer in a simple way as an intentional communication with God, an intentional communication with God. That's the idea of prayer. Uh, that's kind of our basic and simple definition of prayer for this series. But we elaborated a little bit more on it last week where we thought about, well, what, what exactly does prayer do? And we had this really great, uh, let me get a timer going. This is a part of my, my goals, guys. Uh, where we thought about prayer isn't just in simple communication. It's powerful, intentional communication with God. Why? Because prayer comes from a place and cultivates faith that God is, last week we said, powerful, willing, and gracious. Right? That, that prayer is an intentional communication with God that comes from and cultivates faith that God is powerful, willing, and gracious. Okay, and so that's what we're doing over the course of the next several weeks. We're thinking about prayer and, and what prayer looks like. And, and maybe no figure in the Bible invites us into his prayer life and what his prayer life looks like. The language he uses, the tone of his prayers, the purpose of his prayers, the details and the context around his prayers, then the Apostle Paul. And so what we're doing over the next several weeks is we're taking a few ideas from where Paul is praying, from some of his language, and we're bringing that into uh, our prayer life. And this isn't a sermon to say, how do you pray like Paul, but more so at, to observe a few of the principles that are at work in Paul's prayer life and to see if we can take them and apply them into our own prayer life. And my prayer is, for you, is that this series would lead to a more fruitful and a more enjoyable, and, and I'm going to go ahead and just by faith say a more powerful time of prayer for you through this year, uh, and hopefully through the rest of our lives. And so what we're going to talk about this week is we're going to see Paul's experience with prayer and suffering. Okay, prayer and suffering. How does prayer and suffering, how do they interact for Paul? Here's what we're not going to be able to do today. Because of my goal of praying, uh, no, my goal is praying longer, not shorter. My goal is preaching shorter, not longer. Uh, and so what we're going to do is we're not going to be able to go into a big explication or explanation of suffering and a theology of suffering. We've done that in the past, and we'll do it in the future. What we're focusing on today is how does Paul's prayer life engage with his experience of suffering? That's what we're focused on. How does Paul's prayer life engage with his experience of suffering? And suffering is a tricky beast, friends. Suffering is a tricky, tricky beast um, because it is this looming thing, right? Suffering is something every single one of us will go through. Maybe you haven't gone through any substantial suffering yet in your life. It is coming. 
right? Maybe you can look at life and go, man, my life is marked by so many instances of suffering. I'm well acquainted with it. It is this looming reality in a broken and sinful world that sits there and that that presents itself and never really relents because it's just always there going, I'm coming at some point. And yet we live in a culture, in our modern culture, as 21st century Americans, right? Especially Austinites, kind of this more luxurious city, if I may say so myself, uh, that really is aware of that reality and fights with every fiber in our being to just put that reality off. Right? We, we just don't want it. We want to be oblivious to it, despite the fact that it's there and it's looming. And, and it, it's almost like avoiding suffering becomes like our gospel, our good news. We have this vision of our life that our life should only be roses and daisies. And any diversion away from that roses and daily, daisies experience is wrong because suffering isn't right. And if I do experience any suffering, it's an indication that everything or something in my life is wrong. And the reality is, is in a broken and sinful world, nothing can be farther from the truth. Suffering is a reality in a broken and sinful world. And the reality is, and I'm not going to take too much time here, but this is like the first time in decades that, or really the first time in human history that we've even been able to feel that way. Like maybe 40, 50 years is really the only time we've been able to be like, I just want to avoid suffering. I just don't feel like doing, doing that today. That's not a normal part of human history, right? Like you think about 40, 50, 60 years ago, you had the great generation that went into World War II and saw atrocities in front of them. Before that, it was World War I and the Great Depression. And before that, it was like just transitioning into the more modern society away from like an agrarian society where people had to labor and work for their food and things were much harder and life expectancy was much shorter. You go back to Jesus' time and Paul's time in the ancient world and it was a regular occurrence for you to just be sitting at your house one day to feel a rumble and to be like, I think we're going to get invaded. We might die today. Just a regular thing going on, right? Just a regular thing in life. This is what people's experiences with suffering have been like since the beginning of the human story. And yet in the past 40 or 50 years, we've kind of had this attitude of like, not me. Not me. I don't think I want to deal with that, right? It's this crazy relationship we have with suffering. And it's it's not the perspective that Paul had is not the perspective that Jesus had. It's not the perspective that any, any of the prayers in the Bible that we see, these are people, these are lives and stories well acquainted with suffering. And their approach to it, this man's approach to it, is far different than ours. And I think it's powerful. It's an approach that I think it, that's worth observing and worth taking note of. Well, I want to do it from scriptures. I think if I was going to try to distill this idea of Paul's approach to suffering right, into a sentence. I think I would try to do it something like this, that through prayer, suffering invites us deeper into God's mercy and comfort, right, that through prayer, suffering invites us deeper into God's mercy and comfort. I want to emphasize through prayer, because not through prayer, right, suffering can do the opposite of that. People have been burdened by suffering. They become very angry in suffering. Sometimes we get bitter at God in the midst of suffering, but But again, the relationship for Paul between prayer and suffering is that through prayer, suffering invites us deeper into God's mercy and God's comfort. Let's let's take a look at how this this looks in Scripture. We're going to kind of blast through this for a second, but I want us to take a look at Paul's approach here through the Scriptures. And we're going to do that through the verse we read a little bit ago, 2 Corinthians 1. We're going to start at verse 3. Verse 3 starts like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. And boom, right away we have our first kind of step in Paul's approach to suffering. What is it? That his approach to suffering is that it happens in the context of a God who is the, fathers of mercy, is the father of mercies and the God of comfort. I think that's extraordinarily powerful and extraordinarily important for us to take note of in the way Paul is approaching the idea of suffering. He doesn't approach suffering with the lens of some God that's afar off, that's judgmental, or that is looking and being like, oh man, it's not, you know, I hope, I wish you well. But really, he's coming to a God who is the Father of mercies and the God of comfort. We said that prayer is intentional communication with God that comes from and cultivates faith that God is powerful willing, and gracious, and this is exactly what we're talking about. This is exactly what we're talking about, right? When, when Paul is, is approaching the idea to the Corinthians in, in this text of what his experience with suffering looks like and really how we can start to understand how he's approaching God with his suffering, he starts by giving glory to God the Father, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, right? That's who he's approaching, from there, what do we see this God of comfort doing? In verse 4, he says, he, that's God, comforts us in all our affliction. What is it that God does as we approach the God of comfort and the Father of all mercies? We, we see that his response is to comfort us. And what's incredible is this word right here, comfort, the tone of it is the tone of one that, that stands alongside of someone in a test or a trial, bringing encouragement and giving strength to them in the midst of their difficulty. And so Paul sees, I'm going to come to the God of comfort and the Father of mercies with my suffering, and his response is to join me in my suffering and to bring me encouragement and strength in the midst of my suffering. That's Paul's vision. When he thinks of prayer in the midst of suffering, that's how he sees it. And now we also have to take a look at the fact that is what kind of affliction is it? Through the small stuff or through the big stuff? Or through the long stuff or through the short stuff? Through all the stuff. That no matter what type of suffering, no matter what category of challenge, of testing, that the God of comfort and the Father of mercies enters into our experience and he provides us strength and encouragement. That's Paul's vision. So it means that no matter whether your suffering is caused by a broken world, if your suffering is self-induced, if your suffering is long, if your suffering is short, if your suffering is extremely difficult, or if your suffering is kind of just a little bit, the God of all comfort will look at you and say, bring suffering to me, and my response is that I'm going to join alongside of you in the midst of your suffering, and I'm going to bring encouragement to you, I'm going to give strength to you. That's what he sees. To the point that, if we go on to uh, the second part of this verse, so that, right, sorry, no, we can, we can stay on that slide, my bad. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we receive ourselves, we ourselves receive from God, right? That, what does that mean? It means that Paul's vision of comfort is this idea that he, he receives that comfort and he's comforted to the extent that he's able and empowered then to begin to comfort those around him uh, who are also going through hard times. That the comfort of the Lord is overwhelming him, is coming on him, is so consistently with him that through every moment of suffering, he's receiving comfort. And in every moment of comfort, he's being empowered then to comfort others. And the rest of the verse just goes on to kind of elaborate these points, right? You go on to verse um, 
5, for just as the suffering of Christ overflowed, sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. This is a tricky way. I kind of really like the way the NLT translates this, to be honest. Um, it is a tricky way of saying that the more we suffer, the more he comforts, right? The more we suffer, the more he comforts. And then verse 6 continues, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Why? Because if I'm afflicted, then God's going to comfort me. And if I am comforted, I'm going to be comforted and empowered to comfort you. Therefore, my affliction is for your comfort. And then he continues, if we're comforted, though, it's also for your comfort. Why? Because if in the midst of my affliction, I'm comforted, then God's, he comforts to the extent and to the point that I'm empowered to comfort you. So it's likewise for your comfort, which produces in you patience, endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you will also share in the comfort. Um, I, think this is, I think this is really neat. I think this is really powerful, if I'm being honest. What we start to see here is that Paul is seeing his suffering in prayer, in bringing that suffering to the Lord as connecting him to God's comfort. It's connecting him to God's comfort. And the more he suffers, the more God comforts. And the more God comforts him, the more he's enabled and empowered then to go and comfort others. And so Paul, in the context of prayer, in the context of bringing his, his suffering to the Lord in prayer, starts to almost reevaluate the experience of suffering. He no longer is seeing it as this, this taboo thing that should never be seen, but starts to even see it, not quite here, starts to even see it as uh, a fuel for what it looks like to be comforted and to be connected to the comfort and mercy of God, but also as a fuel for how he's empowered to go be a vessel of that comfort and of that peace in the world. That's how he's starting to see it. I know some of y'all are, are visual learners, and so that's where the, the little chart comes in. If you're going to look at it visually, what's going on is that Paul, right, sees himself in his suffering, and he gives that and brings that to the God of comfort. And the response of God is to come and to join Paul in the midst of his suffering, to come alongside of him and to encourage him and to support him and to give him strength. And from then on, in the midst of that suffering, they're going to walk through that suffering together. They're going to walk through that suffering together. And as they walk through that suffering, Paul is going to experience comfort. He's going to experience encouragement. He's going to experience strengthening to the point that now he, with this God of comfort, is going to come alongside of others who he is now going to continue to comfort. Right? It's not just this experience of God's compassion and God's mercy and God's comfort. It's it's really like this, this invitation, again, to experience even deeper and deeper, right, this, this feeling of, of being resting in God and his mercy and his character. Right? That's what's happening here. At one time, um, I, I was going to say I knew a man, but I still know him. Uh, his name is Scott Morse, and he's a very, if you've heard me talk about this guy, I really like him. Oh, Jermaine knows him because Jermaine worked with him. Sorry, sorry, that was way too out of line. Um, and he used to always say, just out of nowhere, he would drop just the wisest things. 
And he had a very like C.S. Lewis vibe because he was like balding but had glasses. By, by say balding, I mean he has nothing here and only on the sides, right? So he was, he was bald. And he would have just this, this vibe where he'd just come and drop an absolute nugget on you. And one time while, I don't know why I'm coming here, but one time while, while Scott was talking, I remember looking at, him, looking at him and saying, man, Scott, you're so wise. And he looked back at me and went, oh, man, I'm not wise. I'm just a man well acquainted with suffering. That was his response. That in the midst of the most difficult times of Scott's life, I think he had done what Paul did. I think he had approached God, offered God his suffering, and God had joined him in the midst of it. And he learned over time to grow more and more dependent on God's comfort, more and more dependent on God's mercy, more and more dependent on God's strength, more and more dependent on God's compassion, that the natural flow was for him to see these young men at which, at the time, I was like 23, 24, and to see us walking in the dark, oftentimes groping for something to try and get us through, and what came out was always these echoes of how to rest in God. And it was oftentimes such a dramatic and such a powerful thing, not because we didn't know that from the Bible, but because so many of us weren't acquainted with suffering in the way that had dragged Scott and said, rest in me, rest in me. That's what I think Paul's doing, and I think Scott's a great example of that, that this, this idea of, in the midst of suffering, how our prayer life interacts with that, is this idea of bringing it to the Lord, right, in prayer, just bringing it to him, confessing it to him, being honest in our prayers about it, and the reality is him joining us, coming alongside of us, comforting us, and strengthening us. There's two quick notes I want to make here that I believe I have time for, uh, and if I go a little bit over, I'm sorry, but... Um, the first one is, that means that God is not, a, he's not passive in our suffering. He's, he's active in his response to our suffering. God is not an onlooker to our suffering going, oh, I'm really sorry about that. That's really tough. Come back and let me know how it's going. Or maybe I can send you a text message a little bit later in the week to check up on what's happening. That's not God's role in the midst of our suffering. In the midst of our hardest moments, we approach God in prayer, and Paul sees the vision of God as spiritually coming next to us, strengthening us, encouraging us, and being present with us. God is not an onlooker in the midst of our suffering. God, in the midst of our prayers, is actively present and encouraging and giving strength in our suffering. Friend, that's the truth of who God is, and the, the God of mercies, and the, the God of comfort, and the Father of mercies in the midst of our suffering. The second thing uh, that I want to note is the fact that this is a spiritual comfort. This is a spiritual comfort that Paul's talking about. And this is something that so many of us do not like to, to, to really get into when it comes to our Christianity. We, don't, we like the idea of God comforting us through maybe like a friend or God working in the lives of people that are around us or our brothers and sisters in the faith. And there are ways to experience God's comfort and God's mercy that are not supernatural or strictly spiritual. There are friends that come around us. Sometimes God provides not by, you know, as the, kind of the saying goes, not by sending, dropping money from the sky, but by providing for you through the people that are around you. That happens. God works like that. And we get to celebrate that when it happens. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's describing a very real emotional 
and spiritual encouragement that comes as his, his heart is overwhelmed, as he's going through difficulties, and he brings it and he lays it before God in prayer. And spiritually, supernaturally, in ways that Paul cannot perceive all the time, in ways that Paul cannot see all the time, God is with him, next to him, providing comfort, providing encouragement, even giving strength in the midst of his suffering. And Paul knows, man, you're with me. You are with me. Even if I would be alone and there would not be a soul that knows what I'm going through, even if I would be alone and there's not a soul to share what I've done, what, I, what, I've, done, what I've gone through, what's been happened, what's been done to me, even if it feels like I'm alone in the whole world, you are next to me. You're with me. You give me strength. You give me encouragement, right? That's what Paul's describing here. He's providing this vision of what it looks like to approach God and for the God of comfort, the Father of mercies, to be present with his people no matter what's happening, no matter if anyone else is around, that he promises to be present and to provide very real encouragement, very real strength in the midst of these difficulties. What a powerful thing. I love, I love that little takeaway, that little, that little note. At first, I ain't going to lie to you. I was reading and I was studying and I was like, well, I don't like that. Because, again, we all kind of get that feeling like I want to feel like a material sense of God's comfort. I want to like, have something that's like I want to look at you and be like, and here's how you can tell God's comforting you. I, you that's, not the, that's not the case here. He's saying there's a very supernatural and spiritual presence that's coming to give strength and encouragement to his people. And so that, that's what we're looking at, right? That's what we do with suffering. That's, that's how Paul handles suffering. I think that's a, a great invitation for us as we think about suffering, to bring it to the Lord, uh, invite his comfort and his care and his strength and his encouragement into our life, uh, and to, to let it mold us to the point that we're then able to serve others. But it's never that easy, right? It would be incredible if I was able to sit here and be like, here it is, and then be like, amen, and then we just send everyone out, and everyone's like, I'm just going to bring it to the Lord. I'm just, this is nothing, no big deal. I'm just going to bring it. We all talk like Mickey Mouse then, and like, all right, I'm going to bring it to the Lord. He's going to comfort me, strengthen me, and I'm going to comfort others. Right? Like, that's, it would be great if that's all that had to happen. It would be amazing. But that, that's, not, that's not what happens, is it? No, the, the reality is for some of us, I want to be very honest with you. Friend, this might as well be Chinese to you. Or another language that you don't know. Maybe you know Chinese. But... Right, it may as well be gibberish to you, right? Because this practice, this idea of coming and unearthing our souls before God, actually coming to him, actually identifying the things that are going on in our heart is so foreign that this doesn't even make sense. It might as well just be a graphic that you take and learn and take a test on and get a right answer, but never actually happen in your actual personal prayer life. And that's the reality that so many of us walk in, whether we're in here, whether we're watching online, because I'm talking to you too, right? Like, like. That is so often what happens. And, and friends, I'm going to be honest. I think that there's a very real culprit for that. And the culprit is, is one culprit with two faces, like a coin with a heads and a tails, right? And the culprit is lies that we believe in the midst of our suffering. Lies that we believe in the midst of our suffering. And the reason I think there's two faces to that coin is I think there's two lies that we believe. The first one is that in the midst, it's not going to come up here, just please listen. Then in the midst of suffering, I have to be strong. In the midst of suffering, I have to be strong. 
And so hard things happen, and we buckle down and go, it's not going to phase me. I'm going to be okay. I can't show others that I'm weak. I have to show others that I can handle it. It's nothing that I can't handle. It will be something that you'll hear when you, how are you doing? Oh, I got some things going on, but it's, it's nothing I can't handle. Right? I, I have to keep this facade of strength up, keep this facade of being able to sustain myself and sustain the others around me. Sometimes we feel this pressure. I have to be strong for the sake of the other people around me, right? I have to be strong for them. Y'all heard me say that before. I, I give myself to that one oftentimes, right? That there's, oh, I have to be strong for them. Like my wife may get a little overwhelmed. My, my kids may get a little anxious. And so I have to be really strong and really calm. And that's what I need to do in the midst of suffering. For some of us, there's very real reasons why we, why we do this. Sometimes we've had um, rough experiences in life, unstable experiences. And so we have these responses of going, I just want to be strong. I just want to be stable. But we tell ourselves this lie, right, that I have to be strong. I want to be strong. And, and, and that's the facade we put up in the midst of suffering. And it stops us from going and saying, hey, Father, I'm weak. It stops us from that first arrow of going from here to the God of comfort. Because we don't want to come to God and say, God, I have nothing to bring to the table right now. We only want to come to God and say, hey, God, can I get a little bit of help? Nothing major. I got it. But if you just give a, little, give a little something here and there, I'll be good, right? We have to believe the lie that we're strong. But the other lie we believe is, is really the opposite, but it's just as venomous, just as unhealthy. We believe that we're helpless. We believe that in the midst of suffering, I have nothing to do. I have nothing to give. There is nothing in me that can fight. There is nothing in my corner that can possibly do anything good or anything positive. And so we let waves of suffering wash over us and we become very empty, very sad, very reserved, and as though nothing could possibly good ever happen again, right? We believe that there's, we're helpless. And so there's oftentimes no game plan in this moment, right? There's no approach of like, I'm going to fight. There's hope. There's just hopelessness oftentimes because you feel helpless. There's nothing you can do, there's nowhere you can go, and suffering is inevitably gonna win as though we didn't have a God, as though we don't have a God that was at one time dead and then was alive. So those are the two lies we wrestle with in the midst of suffering. I think the, the most venomous of them, in the midst of suffering I have to be strong or in the midst of suffering I am helpless. And I lovingly wanna tell you, friend, that's not the gospel. <laughs> Neither of those are the gospel. And for so many of us, that sounds counterintuitive because you've heard messages like you, you have to be strong. God makes you strong. And so you can be victorious and everything that comes to you, you will overcome. And everything like there's no mountain big enough that you can't climb. And so you should be strong. And, and you think, well, that must be the gospel. And then a lot of us on the other side have heard this message of like, but you have absolutely nothing good in you. There's nothing good that you could possibly do. Everything you bring to the table is poor. And everything you bring to the table is weak and therefore in the midst of suffering you can do absolutely nothing and you only have to look at God and be like God get me out of this somehow because I have absolutely nothing to do all the while in the middle the message of the gospel is that the one who was strong became weak so that he could join us in our suffering yes you you are probably not as strong as you think because if you were that strong you wouldn't need a savior you wouldn't need a comforter. You wouldn't need a helper. But knowing the condition of humanity, the God of glory enters into the story and becomes the frail human so that he can join us in our weakness and in our comfort, our weakness and in our suffering. And then he dies. 
He dies in our place. And more than just helpless, he's lifeless. I don't know if you've ever seen, does a dead person advocate for themselves? No. A dead person lies on their own with no movement, and they are truly helpless. But God doesn't leave the helpless like that. God doesn't leave the lifeless in a tomb. He fills the lifeless body with the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' lifeless body. And he brings life to declare that all those who are helpless and all those who are weak in him now will have strength. It's why Paul in Romans says things like the same spirit that gave life, that resurrected Jesus is now alive and at work in you. Right? He says things like, man, the, the grace of God is at work in me so that I would work harder than all the others. That the spirit of God at work in us does bring us strength and advocates that we would fight. Friend, you're not helpless, nor are you, do you need to be strong. In the midst, in the midst of your, your weird concept, our weird conception that we have to be strong, God is inviting us to rest in his comfort and to absorb our weakness. It's why Paul says things like, man, in my weakness, your strength, right, is, is, is made strong. It's made perfect. But as well, when you're feeling weak and you're feeling feeble, we, you, you're invited to take strength and to take up like, like fight and hope in the, the power of the gospel and the power of God's spirit. It's why David always has these words saying that, like, man, God is my refuge and my strength, right? He, he'll work it out. He's working it out, but he doesn't just go work it out in me. He works it out in me. He works it out in you. Friend, you're not, you don't have to be strong, nor are you helpless, friend, right? The gospel is that God enters into our suffering with us. He becomes the weakest so that in him we may have strength and we may have life and we may have encouragement in the midst of our suffering. Friend, that's the actual gospel. It doesn't mean that you have to be completely worthless. It also does not mean that you're going to overcome everything in front of you. It means that we find our rest, whatever we need in Jesus, because that's why he came. He came to bring life. He came to bring strength to the weak. He came to bring rest to the fighting and to the weary. Friend, that's the gospel, that Jesus, the God of comfort, that enters and comes alongside of us. Maybe he has to tell you, put down your sword and rest in me. Maybe he has to tell you, pick up your sword because I'm going to fight alongside of you. But no matter what you need, the God of comfort and the Father of mercies has promised that because of the work of Jesus, he will now come and be next to you in the midst of suffering. Right? That's what's going on here in the gospel. The thing is we have to fight against these lies that tell us we have to be strong or that we're helpless. How do we do that? I think couple of ways I want to encourage you. I keep walking the screen despite the fact that nothing's going to be up here. Uh, so I want you to take note of what I'm going to say. One, I want to encourage you to be honest. And this is specifically going out to the strong fighter crowd uh, here today. Be honest. Be honest. Because I know, I know what it's like to say that you have it all together. But four in the morning, two in the morning, five in the morning, three in the morning come around. And you're sitting there, you're turning in your bed, you can't go to sleep. The worries and concerns of the day are rushing through your mind. You don't, you feel like your legs can't be restful because they feel a little bit restless and you're overcome by anxiety. And in the morning you say, no man, I'm gonna be okay. And you put up the front day after day after day. Friend, you need to be honest about where you are. 
You need to be honest about what you're going through. You need to be honest about the fears you have. You need to be honest about, about what's going on, about your suffering. Be honest. Be honest. Uh, the other thing I want to encourage you kind of goes along with it for the other side. I, I want to encourage you to be clear. And a lot, this may be, be sober-minded if you're, like, like really up-to-date on the Christian lingo, right? <laughs> be sober-minded. What do I mean? I, I mean that if you're alone in the midst of your suffering and no one can provide clarity, no one can help you, no one can speak to you and say, hey, I think this, I know you're going through it, but man, I, what if we did this? What if you did this? If you don't have a voice that's able to come in and encourage you, provide clarity, and help you figure out that maybe some of the things you're going through have very real solutions, then man, you're not clear. You're just living, again, in, in the helpless lie. You're living in that lie that goes, oh, I'm helpless. This is the worst. I can never get better. Nothing good will ever happen. Meanwhile, to be clear, to be sober-minded is to evaluate where you really are, to allow others to help evaluate where you really are. They're not going to have it right. Job had three homeboys that were way off in the book of Job. Them boys was way off. But then he had a little, ho a, a little homeboy. I think his name is Ehu. A young man that came and said, no, 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 like, man, sometimes bad things happen. God's still God. He's still just. And that was the one that he needed. It wasn't all the wise friends that he had. It was that young man that came in and spoke wisdom and truth. But Job listened to all of them. Job listened to all of them. So be clear. Be sober-minded. Those are the two pieces of advice that I want to give you. Um, two application points is that as you go to prayer um, and be honest about where you are, but also and be sober-minded, be clear about where you are. Let others speak into your life uh, and, and e evaluate it. It's not like you got to sit there and be like, oh, you're 100% right, but, but it doesn't mean just give an ear to it. <sighs> I want to finish up with a story, as I often do, as I like to at least, I try to. Um, this actually reminds me of the story of a young man that I know. And that young man, uh, he had a hard time being honest. He had a hard childhood in some ways because uh, his parents fought a lot. And uh, he oftentimes found himself in what he would describe as a very helpless situation, right? Kind of a helpless moment. And, and if kind of the vision that he had of himself as a child was kind of like this kid in the corner afraid. And so the response to that in his heart over the years was, I'm never going to be afraid again. I'm going to be what? I'm going to be strong. I once was helpless, but now I'm going to be strong. And so he formed this kind of sense of strength, this sense of anger. And he reacted in anger at most things. If he was feeling scared, he yelled. If he was feeling out of control, he would grab a chair and like chunk it across the room. And this happened over and over again. This happened over and over again. It happened when he was in college. It happened when he was in high school. It happened when he uh, got married. It happened at the beginning of his relationship with his children. It happened all the time. He just fought and fought and fought and wanted to express strength because he never wanted to be that helpless kid in the corner again until one day um, he was writing something for his college degree, and he was writing this thing and they asked him, what is your vision of yourself as a child? 
and he wrote down scared, helpless kid in the corner. And when he wrote it down, he became overwhelmed because he realized that for his whole life, he was never fighting against the situation that he was in. He was never fighting against the things that were happening, but he was just fighting to not be the scared kid in the corner anymore. He was just fighting that shadow, the imagination of where he once was. And in the midst of that, he started to develop a relationship with God. And, and in the midst of this, he started seeing that, that, that imaginary story that he was fighting against. Not imaginary, but that, that echo, that shadow of the past that he was fighting against and saying, I'm not that anymore. He would begin to turn to God, and God would begin to encourage and bring strength to him. He started identifying himself less with the scared, helpless kid in the corner and more with being loved and cared for, more with being seen and known, more with being loved and accepted. And all of a sudden, the things that he was struggling with, the outbursts that he would have slowly begin to change, not because he's ch his actions just changed, but because what he was fighting against began to become different. He started identifying in a moment what was going on instead of just trying to, in instead of just trying to erase the shadow of the past, that he, was, that he was wrestling with in the midst of his sufferings now. And over time, he began to experience freedom. Can you imagine the freedom? Can you imagine freedom of saying, man, I've gone my whole life fighting against this thing, fighting against this image, and I've tried to be strong, but now I recognize that then I was weak, and now I'm allowed to be weak, and now I'm being, being told that I'm actually strong, but I'm actually strong in a new way, in a way that connects me to the love of God and the care of his compassion and his grace and his mercy and his comfort. Friend, what freedom that young man must have felt. Can you imagine? I can 100% imagine, because the young man is me. I'm that young man. And I don't mean that figuratively. I mean that literally. That's my story. And up until maybe three years ago, when I was writing a paper for school, and they asked me to describe in a C.S. Lewis-esque moment, how would you say the tempter wants to tempt you? And I wrote down, get him to focus on the scared kid in the corner. That hit me. I've been fighting against that little boy my whole life. And I don't want to anymore. Honestly, God, I don't know how to handle these things. I'm scared. I'm weak. Help me. And the rush of the spiritual presence of God to come next to me and to encourage me, to comfort me, and to provide me strength in the midst of that is something and a moment and a season that I will never forget, that I will always be thankful for, and that was the most life-changing thing that I could possibly have imagined. Friend, be honest. Be honest about where you are. Be honest about where you are. Be sober-minded and clear-minded about what's going on in your heart. You want to think about those things? You don't know how to do them? We preached a bunch of sermons on your emotions last year. Go run through some of that stuff. That'll help you. I, I think that'll help you. If you want some recommendations on books, holler at your boy. I got mad books now, right? I got mad books all about the emotional struggle, right? And, and connecting it to, to God, to the, to the Father of mercies and the God of comfort. But, friend, the more we're able to be honest, to lay down our heart, Right, to be sober and clear about what's happening in our lives, what's happening in our mind, what's happening in our emotions, what's happening spiritually, and to bring that to God in the midst of our suffering, whether it's, it's self-induced, whether it's the results of broken things, whether it's sinful, whether it's, whether it's just, just hurtful, and we bring that, God promises to be present, to come next to us, 
to, to spiritually be next to us, to provide encouragement and strength. Friend, that, that's what's happening here. It's not Paul's idea. It's God's idea. It's not Paul's idea. It's God's idea to send his son in order to, to join those that are weak in the midst of their suffering so that in him they could be strong. Right? That, that's, that's the gospel. That's just Paul putting the gospel in his prayer life when it comes to suffering. That's all that is. And that's what we're invited into here. So, friend, in your prayers, I want to encourage you and bring these things to God. Open your heart to him. Be honest. Be sober-minded. Begin to walk this out with other people, but, but also don't limit it to other people. Go into your space where you're alone with God and let him begin to encourage you. And let that encouragement overflow. Become a vessel for what his love and comfort and mercy look like in the world by you actually sharing the things that God is doing in your life. With that, I am prayerfully hopeful um, that this can have an actual impact on how we live here, right? To have gospel-filled prayers in the midst of our suffering that exchange our suffering with God's comfort. And, and as Paul wrote, that almost the more we suffer, the more he comforts. And we rest in that comfort more and more through every moment of suffering. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God. Um, thank you, God, that we live in a world where, if I'm being honest, a lot of us don't think about these things that much. Thank you, Father, for those of us that have been spared various forms of suffering. But thank you for the example of men like Paul, men like Jesus, men like Peter, people in the scriptures um, who were well acquainted with suffering, uh, who suffered greatly, who suffered deeply, and who were so well-versed in the good news of what you've done in your son, Jesus, that they took their suffering and they laid it at your feet, knowing that because of the resurrection and the life of Jesus, what they would receive in return was beautiful comfort, compassion, encouragement, and strength. Help us to be as honest as these. Help us to, to be clear and to, to fight to understand what's happening in our minds and our hearts. Help us to bring to you the things that are going on in us and to your glory uh, that, you would, that you would comfort us, the Father of mercies and the God of comfort. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.